Grab your Bibles and open to Matthew 22. If you don't have a physical Bible with you and you'd like one, Jonas would love to hand you one. So if you just put your hand up in the air, he'd be glad, glad to give you one. And if at any time you would rather grab one of these that we have down here, you're welcome to do that. You can leave them on your seats. We'll take care of them from there. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take it home with you. We really want everybody to have a copy of the Word of God, and we'd love for you to take that copy with you. And so if you don't own one, take that one home, and uh, you can read it on your own. Series called the Gospel of the Kingdom, working our way through the Book of Matthew, and uh, this uh, we're finding ourselves today in the second part of a two-part series about playing games. So what we found at the beginning of Matthew 21 is as Jesus entered Jerusalem, heralded as the King, marched into the temple and literally like rearranged the furniture, right? Like turned over some stuff and drove some people out. Uh, he offended. The, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the temple authorities, but the people loved him. And so there was this really tricky situation where the, the teachers of Judaism wanted to, to push Jesus away, but they couldn't because the people loved him, but they didn't want to follow him. And so they did this kind of weird dance with him where they didn't want to submit to his authority, but they didn't want to outright reject him either, which is, interestingly enough, where we often find ourselves. Maybe not consciously, but at least subconsciously saying, I don't really want Jesus to be completely in control of everything because that means I can't be in control of everything. And I kind of like being in control of everything. And so we play games. And that's what we looked at last week. And that's what we're going to pick up this week. Last week was a series of stories that Jesus told. This week is a series of questions that Jesus is being asked. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I find a disparity between the Christian life, as I see it described in the scriptures, and the life that I see Christians living out around me. Anybody? Uh, my own life included. Where I look and say, man, I, I read about abundant life and peace and beauty and goodness, and I feel tension and frustration, and not the same stuff I read in here. Like, what's going on with that? Uh, Dallas Willard calls that the great disparity, this distance between what we expect the Christian life to be and what we find the Christian life to be. And I found myself as I was preparing for this morning feeling bad because I don't think I've quoted Dallas Willard for like six whole weeks or something. And it's like really sad for you guys. You needed a good Dallas Willard quote. So um, listen to what Willard has to say about the disparity. He says this, if your neighbor's having trouble with his automobile, you might think he just got a lemon. And you might be right. But if you found out that he was supplementing his gasoline with a quart of water now and then, you would not blame the car or its maker for it not running or for it running in fits and starts. You would say that the car was not built to work under the conditions imposed by the owner. And you would certainly advise him to put only the appropriate kind of fuel in the tank. After some restorative work, perhaps the car would then run fine. We must approach the current disappointments about the walk with Christ in a similar way. It, too, is not meant to run on just anything you may give it. If it doesn't work at all, or only in fits and starts, that is because we do not give ourselves to it in a way that allows our lives to be taken over by it. Do you get what Willard's saying? There's a fuel that's intended to run the life of Christ. 
And if we've substituted water for gasoline, we shouldn't be surprised that the car doesn't run right. If, if the Christian life that we live is not what we expect when we read the scriptures, it's likely not a problem with Jesus, but more a problem with what we're feeding the life of Christ in us. That's the heart of the games that Jesus is confronting today. It, it, the, the heart of coming and receiving grace and then sitting back and waiting for transformation to happen. We shouldn't be surprised if we've received grace and then sat back and waited that transformation didn't come. Because the scriptures say things like make every effort, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, train your body like an athlete. Jesus says, daily pick up your cross and follow after me. And so we should expect that there is effort required on our part. That we, in living the way of Jesus, have to step with intentionality into the way of Jesus. So last week, we saw a question about Jesus' authority. Who says that you can do such things? And Jesus tells three stories, remember? The first one was about someone who said, with their mouth, yes, I'll do it, I'll follow after you. But with their life, they said, nah, never mind, I'm not going to. And Jesus said that those who say with their mouth that they believe something, but don't live that thing with their lives, don't truly believe it. Then he said, there are people who are living in a, a vineyard, and it's owned by someone else, and that, that someone else has every right to tell them how to manage the fruitfulness of that vineyard. And their response is, I'll do it like I want to. Their, their response is, yeah, yeah, I hear that, but that's inconvenient, that's difficult right now. Here, I'd like to do this instead, or I'll just put that off for a little bit. I, when, it's, when it's more convenient for me, two weeks, three weeks, four years, ten years, whatever, I'll, I'll get to it at some point in time. And then he tells a story about someone who is under the lordship of a king who says that you need to change. And the response was, no, I don't. I'm good. And I'm sure that a loving king wouldn't ask me to change because he just wants me to be happy. Without the recognition, of course, that the Bible is very concerned about our holiness, very concerned about our joy, but often the path to joy and holiness is through our unhappiness. That's actually, for most of us, the direction we end up being, getting called. So that's where we pick up. The Pharisees have been challenged through these stories, and now they're going to step in and challenge Jesus through a series of questions. So there's three games before us today. A game that I'm calling the segmentation game, a game that I'm calling the theological game, and a game I'm calling the generalization game. The names aren't important, but I think you'll find yourself in the middle of all three of them. And then finally, we're going to get to a question of identity. Finally, Jesus gets to a point where everybody's quiet enough for him to ask a question, and that frames all that we've seen. So um, let's pray, and let's invite the Lord to speak to us. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and speak your truth to us personally and directly. God, show us where we're playing games and show us the pathway to the fullness of life, to a car that runs just like it's supposed to. And so God, lead us forward, I pray. Guide my words that they would come from you, 
Not from my flesh. May the words that come from my flesh fall to the ground and be forgotten, but may the words that come from your spirit remain finding fertile soil in our hearts. And so God, may we become more like you starting today and continuing forward. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Matthew 22, let's start in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So Matthew tells us from the outset, they're not interested in the teachings of Jesus, they're trying to trick Jesus. And they bring this question to him that on the surface is a political question, right? Um, Should we pay taxes or not taxes? But because we're not in that situation, we miss that there's a lot more to the question than should they simply pay taxes. What's happening here is that they're bringing to him a significant justice issue. Historians tell us that oppressed people in the Roman Empire paid between 70 and 80% of their money in taxes. I don't know what you're paying, but it's not 70 or 80%. Like 70 to 80%. They're paying in taxes, and that money's not going to them. It's not helping them at all. It's not like there are all these social programs so there's nobody hungry and nobody that's, that's suffering. All of that money is going to the militaristic empire to protect the borders of the Roman Empire all around the known world at the time. And so when they come to Jesus and say, should we pay Caesar's tax, it's not simply a matter of should we pay taxes or not pay taxes. It's a matter of should we, through our actions, support the oppressor and the one who is causing injustice? That's a much more significant question. And Jesus is kind of trapped because if he says pay taxes, he's saying support the oppressive empire. But if he says don't pay taxes, he's treasonous and he's going to be arrested. So what's he do? Well, it's fascinating because first he says, you hypocrites, which we often miss and just kind of read through, But then he says, show me the coin. And they reach in their pocket and pull out a coin. What he's saying is, you're complicit in this situation just as much as everybody else. You're you're in the middle of this situation. You're carrying around the very money that you're asking me about. You're using the very money that you're asking me about. And then he says this. Whose image is on this? Specifically using the word, image and likeness. Whose, Whose image is on this? Caesar's, they say. So give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give to God that which is God's. Now, what did he mean? Theologians tell us there's two levels. One is specifically the word that Jesus used. Whose image is on it? Caesar's image is on it? Genesis chapter 1, Jesus is referencing to these teachers of the law who know the Bible inside and out. Genesis chapter 1 says that when men and women were created, we were made, do you remember the phrase? In the image and likeness of God. Whose image and likeness is on that coin? Give it to Caesar's. That's temporary. 
but give to God's that which is God's. Anything that bears the image and likeness of God, that belongs to him. And so what he's saying is there's a clear distinction here between the temporary that you can give away, it's no big deal, it doesn't matter, and the eternal, the people that belong to God. Very appropriate interpretation, but I don't think that's the heart of what Jesus is saying. I think there's a step beyond that that he's saying. He says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give to God that which is God's. They're picturing the, the entire known world that belongs to Caesar. And he's saying to them, begging the question, who, who made the metal that that coin's made out of? Who made the tools that fashioned the image on the metal that that coin's made out of? Who has established the structure and allowed the country to be in place that's trading that coin? Who made the people who are engaged in the process of exchanging those coins? See, what he's saying is that you see the, the purview of Caesar and it feels like it's everywhere, but the reality is Caesar's is here and God's is here. Like everything belongs to him and Caesar's is just a small subset of that. It, it's not a matter simply of giving to Caesar that which is Caesar's and then separating it out, segmenting it out. Instead, there's a, there's a tension that they should feel. Like, at the end of this, I think they're saying, so do I give it to Caesar or do I don't give it to Caesar? Like, does it belong to Caesar or belong to God? And I, and I think that's appropriate. That's the tension that Jesus is trying to bring out in us. Frederick Bruner, as he's commenting on this passage, pushes into it. He, he says this, Jesus' great sentence does not forever settle the question of Christians' relation to the state. Because every day we must ask ourselves afresh if we're giving too little or too much of our energies to the political. Jesus' Caesar sentence is a slide rule asking us perpetually to readjust our use of time and priorities. Here's what Brunner's saying. Jesus is not giving us a black and white, do this, don't do that. He's not drawing a line down the middle. Instead, what he's saying is everything is God's. And so therefore, we all, moment by moment, need to make decisions about how we're using the everything that we've been given. So taxes probably aren't the primary thing on your mind, um, at least not yet. You're going to get there in a couple months, but for right now, um, let me give you two examples. First, Jesus is talking about money. So let's look at money. For many followers of Jesus, there's a mindset, sometimes spoken, often not spoken, that says there's a certain percentage of my income that belongs to God, that's his, that's sacred. The rest of it, that belongs to me. I can do anything I want. That's secular, that's mine. And so we divide it subconsciously into a sacred and secular group and we believe I can do with what's mine anything I want and then God can take his. He can have his, I'll take mine. And Jesus says, no. Like, there's, there's Caesar's, and that's encompassed in the everything that's God's. There's no such thing as something that's not spiritual. It's all spiritual. A another way to look at it is time. So you're here this morning. Maybe you take 15 or 20 minutes or a half hour or whatever it is in the morning to just be in the presence of the Lord and spend time with him. Maybe you go to a community group or uh, a small group meeting over the course of the week. Those are all God's times, right? That's the, that's the sacred time. And then the rest of it, subconsciously, is mine. 
I can do what I want. But see, God actually cares about how you're spending that time. God's actually interested in the mundane details of life because they're equally sacred. The time that you're spending on the couch on Tuesday evening is as sacred in the presence of the Lord as this time is. And so what God's saying is, what Jesus is, t- is telling the Pharisees, there, there's no separation. It, it's not like there's sacred over here and secular over here. It all belongs to him. There, there's a French Jesuit priest named uh, Pierre de Chardin, and he makes a, a fabulous statement. I love this quote. He says this, you are not a human being in search of a spiritual experience. You're a spiritual being immersed in a human experience. Do you get it? You're not a human being in search of something spiritual out there somewhere, this breadth of humanity, and you're hoping to find a pocket of spirituality. Instead, you're a spiritual being, and you're immersed in a human experience that's embedded in the breadth of spirituality. When Jesus says that to them, they're astonished. They don't know what to say. There's no response because they recognize that he's outsmarted them. So we move on. Uh, Verse 23, the Sadducees now show up. So the Pharisees have been outsmarted. They've been pushed over to the side. The Sadducees come in. Um, The Sadducees who say there is no resurrection ask him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. That's the nice way the ESV says it. It's really close to you're stupid. That's about what he says. Um, You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. All right, so uh, let me just set this up for you. The Sadducees uh, are a sect of Judaism which we tend to not spend a lot of time on. They're actually far more important and powerful than the Pharisees, but the Pharisees are in the Bible more so we know more about them. The Sadducees were uh, where actually the high priest was at that point. So Caiaphas, the high priest, was a Sadducee. The Sadducees were in charge of the temple in almost every significant position. And you could kind of think of them like, uh, like, liberal theology people. So they didn't see the entirety of the Old Testament as God's word. They only trusted the first five books of the Old Testament as God's word. Everything else was a bit of a commentary on the first five books. They didn't believe in the resurrection, as Matthew points out to us. They didn't believe in miracles or the supernatural. They tended to be kind of in line with the the empire, the, the governing systems of the day. So they come to Jesus, not believing in the resurrection, to ask him about the resurrection. So we should already be thinking, 
hmm, that's, that's probably not good, right? So they come with this situation, and it's this ludicrous thing, right? Like, okay, so there's seven brothers, and there's this practice, I don't have time to dig into it, but there's this practice in the Old Testament called leveret marriage, where if a brother is married to a woman, and he dies, and she doesn't have any kids, the other brother needs to marry that woman in order to bring children into the family. So the situation is, the first brother dies, no kids, so the second brother marries her, he dies, no kids, the third brother marries her, he dies, no kid. At some point, somebody should have said, this woman's killing people. Like, we should stay away from her. But whatever. Um, it goes all the way through to the seventh, and he gets to the end, and he says, okay, so now what, Jesus? You teach the resurrection. Ha, 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 ha. Now what are you going to do? What do you do with that situation? And it's great, because Jesus says, for, he says to teachers of the law who have the Bible memorized, you don't know the Bible. <laughs> like, you're, you're dumb. And, and then he says, you don't have enough imagination to be able to engage in the power of God. That's vitally important. L listen to how he explains it. He says, look, you see marriage and humanity in this very narrow way. But God's vision of humanity is so much bigger than that. Marriage is intended to be an arrow that points to a greater reality. That reality is the presence of God with man. It's the connection between God and man. So in the resurrection, there's not a need for marriage because the arrow is pointing to something that's already here. So you don't need the arrow because you have the reality. Beyond that, he says, have you ever read the Old Testament? Have you ever read the book of Exodus? So he quotes from one of the five books that they respond to as scripture. And he quotes from Exodus 3, as Moses is being encountered by God, God defines himself as, I am the God of Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob, all in present tense. And even in Exodus 3, those dudes were dead. And so he was like, like don't, don't you see, even your own scriptures say that those who have already died, God is still their God. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So therefore, the resurrection's proven. Uh, Jesus, in a masterful way, answers their question. Now, there's so much more to it than that. We could spend like two weeks just on resurrection and what he's talking about. But here's what I want you to see. The Sadducees are playing a game. And the game is this. You're being heralded as God and King of the universe, the Messiah sent to us. But we have a little theological question that we'd like you to answer. And based on your answer to this question, we'll determine whether you're allowed to be God or not. Like, do you see how, how crazy that is? Except we do it all the time. We have a perception of what we believe to be right. And so we bring that to God and we say, if you answer right, I'll let you be God. Which, of course, is the definition of us actually being God. Like, one of the easiest places to see it right now is the question of gender and sexuality. At our, our welcome class, we will likely deal with that. We deal with it almost every time for the last four or five years. And it's an appropriate question to ask. In our, in our current context, what's your position on how do you handle blah, 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 blah. Great. No problem. But the way that we often perceive that question is, I understand what an appropriate just and right vision of sexuality and gender is because I'm a 21st century enlightened person 
Therefore, I'll come to the scriptures, and if God agrees with me about the sense of justice that he's embedded in me, I'll judge him by that sense of justice, and if he's wrong, I'll reject him, and if he's right, I'll keep him. Right? We do it all the time. And we take this little question that is really minor within the, the broad spread of the heart of God, and we judge God based on that question to determine whether we're going to keep him or reject him. And that's where Jesus' words to the Sadducees are so powerful because he says, your problem is you don't have a spiritual imagination. You're not allowing your imagination to be sanctified in such a way that you could understand that the God of the universe might actually be bigger than how you see the world. Like, he may have a bigger view of justice than you're capable of understanding. There may be plans that God has for the people around you, for you yourself, that you can't even fathom right now. But see, we play this theological game where we come with our, whatever our pet theological issue is, and we bring it to God and say, if you answer this question right, I'll let you be God. The Sadducees do it. Jesus not only proves them wrong, but in the process calls them on the game that they're playing. So the Sadducees leave, and now the Pharisees come back. The Pharisees and the Sadducees hate each other. And so I think the Pharisees were really glad to see the Sadducees proved wrong. That was really good. And so now the Pharisees are like, we're coming back in to take another crack. So uh, pick up in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, now that's a, a teacher of the law, not like a trial lawyer. That's somebody who's uh, familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. A lawyer asked him a question to text, test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this is almost like the theological game that the Sadducees were playing. He's coming with a theological question, a very common one of the day. A normal rabbinical discussion was, what's the greatest law, or what law encompasses all the laws? So you need to understand, the Pharisees had determined that there were 617 distinct commands within the Old Testament, and all of those 617 commands had their own little like commentaries and sub-laws that went with them, so it was like really complicated, like worse than the tax code, like crazy, like impossible to figure out. And so the question was, is there one law that if I just follow this one, I'll hit like 90% of the other ones? Like, is there a way to boil this down? And so they asked the question, what's the greatest law? And Jesus first answers what would have been probably the most typical answer of the day. Out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. This was a prayer that the Israelites prayed several times a day. It was a very common answer to the question. If you just do this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you'll be good. And, and I think it sounds really nice too, right? Like you just, you hear that and it's this very high level general answer that feels like warm and fuzzy. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And you hear it and you just think, I, I'm pretty sure I'm doing that. Like I just, I, I felt like that was a really great song that Seal sang. I feel it. Like I'm just, I'm in. Like I love God like that, right? It's, it's very tough to define. It's very kind of high level, ethereal, spiritual. It, it sounds really good. But then Jesus does this thing where he says, and, and he quotes Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now that's like the opposite of ethereal and spiritual, right? Like that's, I don't know about your neighbors, but those people are hard to love. Like that's, that's very practical and earthy. Love your annoying neighbor just like you love yourself. What? And so I, I think they're trying to, they come back and they're like, Jesus, we told you to give us one. You just gave us two. He said, no, you, you said, what's the, what's the greatest law? And I told you, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They said, that's two. No, it's one. It's one because one is inextricably tied to the other. What Jesus is saying is this. The ethereal generalized command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is proven by the earthy command to love your neighbor as yourself. If you truly love God with everything that you have, you will love your annoying neighbor as yourself. And if you try to love your annoying neighbor as yourself and you're not being fueled by the love of God, it's gonna last about a week before you're just done. You just can't take it anymore. See, Jesus isn't allowing them to remain at this broad, generalized level where following him requires nothing. He's saying, yes, love the Lord your God with everything you have. Yes, of course. And that's proven through the practical reality of loving your neighbor as yourself. For Jesus, love means something specific and tangible, not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. Michael Wilkins has studied the Sermon on the Mount and has defined what Jesus calls neighbor love this way. He says that neighbor love looks like this. An unconditional commitment to an imperfect person in which one gives oneself to another to bring the relationship to God's intended purposes. So he talks like a theologian, but what he's saying is this, that love, neighbor love for Jesus means being committed to broken people completely without any conditions. And God determines the timing and the intent of that relationship, I don't. So bound up in love is the fact that the person I'm loving is broken. Bound up in love is the fact that it's not based on anything that they're doing to deserve love that I'm giving to them. Bound up in love is that I'm loving a person, not just people. See, it's easy to say I'm gonna love everybody, but it's hard to love the person right in front of me. That's the challenge that Jesus is giving to them. Bruner, again, commenting on this, says, says this. Karl Marx loved the working class, for example, but could barely stand individual workers. People can love the world, the third world, or the poor very easily until they meet obnoxious representatives. The normal way that believers love the world is through loving attention to each single member of that world as each passes by on a typical day. We love the whole world we cannot reach through the part we can. The hunk of the human race given to each one daily is the disciples' main way to love the world. Bruner says this, you love the people in front of you because they're in front of you. It always feels easier to love the people on the other side of the world. But if you don't love the people in front of you, you don't love the people on the other side of the world. Because the people on the other side of the world seem nice. The person in front of you is always annoying. That's just the way it works. And when we generalize the command to make love a feeling that's warm and nice and fuzzy, but not a practical, sacrificial, difficult act, what we do is we find ourselves following Jesus when we're not actually following Jesus. And he says, you're not going to play that game. The command is to love God and love people, 
to prove your love for God by loving people. The Pharisees hear it and they have nothing more to say, which if you followed along in Matthew is a miracle by itself when the Pharisees are quiet. So um, in the quiet, Jesus speaks up. Verse 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. I think that's great. We're not talking to that guy anymore. So so here's what happens. Jesus asked them a very basic question. Who's the Christ? Whose son is the Christ? And they answered in the way that every good Jewish person in the known world at the time, the son of David. Everybody knew that the Messiah came from the line of David. Matthew has spent half of the book establishing the fact that Jesus has come from the line of David. It's a significant part of who the Messiah is. And so they say the son of David, and he says, okay, And then he quotes Psalm 110 to them. And it's like they've never read that before. Like, why is it then, if he's son, why does he call him Lord? And they they don't know what to say. Now, my first reaction as I read this is like, oh goody, Jesus beat them at Bible trivia. That's great. It's It's like they've been back and forth, and Jesus answered, they answered, Jesus answered, they answered. Now he asked them a question, they're like stumped. Like, Jesus wins. Yay, we win. Jesus wins. That's great. But that's not what's going on. There's a significant issue at stake with what Jesus is talking about. If the Messiah is solely the son of David, that means that the Messiah is coming in the way of David to do the work of David. Which means that the Messiah, as they expected him to be, would come as a militaristic king, a warrior king, who would conquer the political oppressors and give the people of God freedom. That's what the son of David does. But if he's the Lord of David, that means the Messiah is not simply coming as a militaristic human king to conquer human oppressors, but he is the pre-existent God become man. He is divine in origin and therefore divine in mission. He's not out simply to conquer human oppression, but any spiritual oppression that opposes him. What's that mean? Well, the Pharisees want the Messiah to attack the Romans. Like, that's the whole point. We want the Messiah to come, conquer the Romans so that we can be free. But if he's the Lord of David, that means he's after them. And that means he's after you. And that means he's after me. Because Jesus, as the Lord of David, is opposed to any place there's sin. And at the end of these six games, if nothing else, I think we're all in the position where we would say at least one of those hit a little too close to home, right? Like at least one of those games, I feel like I do that at least now and then. And so Jesus, at the end of this conversation about all the ways that they're playing around with his authority, points the finger and says, and you're the problem. So what do we do with that? Because if he's the Lord of David, 
that means that he is opposed to anyone who confesses the name of Jesus but refuses to live the way of Jesus. That means he's opposed to anyone who says, you're in charge and I'll listen to you when I'm ready once we figure out the terms. He's opposed to anyone who says, you're in charge as long as you don't ask me to change because no God that I serve would ever ask me to change. He's opposed to anyone that says there's a sacred and secular divide and this area of my life I can do with whatever I want. He's opposed to anyone who says, I will follow you as soon as you answer my theological question where I can determine that you're worthy of being God. He's opposed to anyone who generalizes his commands so much that it makes no practical difference in their life. The point is, he's opposed to all of us because we all do it. And so what do we do with a God like that? Turn to the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, I think Paul lays out a case for us as to why we can't play games with Jesus. What are the stakes and what's it look like if we come to the Lord of David playing games? Listen to what Paul says starting in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So pause for a second. This is what Paul says. All of us are dead, and we're dead because we were born into the sinful nature we have. So this is not primarily about how you act. It's not about justifying your behavior. By our very birth, we are birthed in a way that is opposed to God. So sinfulness just comes with us, and the result of that sinfulness is death. You were dead in your trespasses. So if I'm dead, I don't need a little boost. I don't need a little bit of help. I don't need like a leg up, right? I I need life. I need resuscitated, because if I'm dead, there's nothing I can do. And so that's what, that's what Paul speaks into. This is verse four. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So pause again. What he said is th- that the, the Lord of David loves us so much that he stepped into our deadness and gave us life. So the mercy of God is so great that he finds us as his, his enemies, steps in, and doesn't just give us a boost, doesn't just help us out a little bit. He brings us back to life. He gives us new life. So listen to what Paul says about that. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul says, you've been brought back to life in Christ. That, that life that you've received, it's not, nothing that you did. You're not impressive. You have received the gift of faith that has been given to you by God, and that gift of faith has given you the grace that you've entered into. The life that you have is his, not yours. But 
He is, moment by moment, planning out good works that he has planned for eternity for you that you get to walk in. So when you and I encounter the grace of God, that's not the end of the road, but it's the beginning of the road. And at that point, we should be living with eyes wide open to the reality of God around us. We should be saying, God, what's the next thing? Like, what do I get to walk into now? What's the good work that you planned for me today, this moment? What do I get to step into now? And that's, back to Willard's quote at the very beginning, the fuel of the life of Christ. So see, what happens is this. We receive grace. I've got new life. Air in my lungs. Wonderful. And then I just stop. That's playing games. Because the authority of Jesus, the God of the universe who's giving us life, is now calling us to walk in his way. And so what we do is moment by moment recognize the game and repent. Like it's not about getting rid of all six of these games immediately. What it's about is recognizing when I'm doing it. Like I I was far more aware this week of when I was redefining grace. I don't know about you, but I was far more aware when I'm making a decision saying, "Eh, that's not grace, that's disobedience. And so I repent, I turn. I, I recognize I'm segmenting God out of this. This is actually his purview just as much as my church is his purview. So I repent and I turn. See, I recognize the game, I repent, and I step back into the way of God and I step into those good things that he's planned for me since the beginning. And as that happens, the disparity between the life that I live And the life that I'm promised gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. That's the Christian life. And so Jesus' invitation is not an invitation to perfection. It's an invitation to repentance, to turn back to him. And so I don't know where you find yourself, but there's two things that we need to come back to moment by moment. That he's in charge and that we're not. And then that we release what we've held on to. We turn, we repent, and we come back to him. We don't just do that now. We do that this afternoon, and we do that tomorrow, and we do that throughout our living so that our lives get closer and closer to what Jesus has promised our life would be. And so I want to invite you into not the final of that, but a step in that direction, an opportunity to do that. The worship team is going to come, and they're going to lead us, and they're going to declare the kingship of the God of the universe. And we get the opportunity to orient ourselves to that truth. And then there's going to be an opportunity just for us to to repent, to recognize the grace of God. And so you can do that right where you're at. You can do that as you pray silently before the Lord, but you can also come to one of these corners and we'd love to pray with you and just pray that into reality. Sometimes just saying the words out loud is a really important step in the process. And so um, I, I want to invite you to respond, to get serious about it, to say, God, I, I've played games, and I need to stop, and I need to turn back to you again. So would you pray with me, and then let's spend time with the Lord. Jesus, I thank you for your love, for your truth, for your mercy. I thank you for the fact that you have given us new life in you. God, I pray that we would be people who moment by moment 
are willing to step into life saying, what's next? What's you, what have you planned for us? And so God, open our eyes to what's right in front of us. Thank you for the grace of repentance and the invitation back into your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.